hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week's episode is the audio from an event we held here in London on Tuesday nights, exploring some of the many challenges involved in publishing an independent magazine. We had a totally packed room at the book club in Shoreditch and some really interesting insights from Caspian Whistler from A Profound Waste of Time, Elizabeth Crone from Sabat and Suspira magazines and Helen Jennings from Natal. I'm not going to say any more about them now because you'll hear a proper introduction at the start of the event and this is already an ultra long episode. Uh, We speak for a little over 45 minutes and then there's another good 45 minutes of audience Q&A. So this whole episode clocks in at over an hour and a half. There's some really useful stuff in the Q&A though so you might just want to break it up and listen to it in a couple of sittings if 90 minutes of magazine chat sounds like a bit much. I'd like to take a minute first though to say thanks very much to Park Communications who were there with us on the night showing some of the lovely independent magazines they print. Uh, You'll hear from them briefly in the Q&A too as they step in with some authoritative printer knowledge. As you'd expect, they know an awful lot about printing magazines and they're very nice, friendly people too. So if you are thinking about making a magazine, head over to parkcom.co.uk to see what they could do for you. Okay, that's all from me for now. I hope you'll enjoy this episode recorded live on Tuesday, 22nd of January, 2019. All right, thank you very much. Welcome to this first Stack Live event of 2019. Um, every time we hold a magazine event, doesn't matter what we're talking about, at the end we get questions about like really specific, really geeky stuff about how do you actually make this magazine. So we thought for this first one, we're going to give the whole evening over to those proper practical questions about how do you actually get this stuff made. We're splitting it into uh, little sections on funding, commissioning, production and distribution. I think that that sort of covers the main bits, but we definitely want to hear your questions um, at the end. So um, please do bear that in mind. And we've got for this evening um, three speakers. Each of them makes at least one brilliant magazine. We're getting a two-for-one deal in in the middle here as well with Elizabeth who makes two magazines, uh, more than two magazines. and they all have quite different experiences of making magazines. So hopefully there'll be someone here who is kind of at about your stage and you might get some useful stuff um, from them. So immediately to my left, uh, we have Caspian Whistler, who is, I'm gonna read my notes to get this right, <laughs> the uh, creative director and editor of uh, Profound Waste of Time. So a uh, video games magazine which is really interested in the culture of video games and trying to treat video games kind of as art. Um, it started as a university project. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to Kickstarter, it raised double the amount of money they need on Kickstarter. The first issue came out, they sold a ton of magazines really quickly, sold out and then he had a massive nightmare with trying to print some more copies. So we'll be hearing more about that in a little bit. And next to Cass, we have Elizabeth Crone, who is the editor of Sabat, the editorial advisor of Suspira, and the co-founder of Dreadful Press. Am I right in saying that Sabat also started as a university project? Yes. 
Okay, yes, it did. And so, and so it started at university, a three-issue magazine based around witchcraft and feminist uh, ideas kind of surrounding witchcraft. Um, Suspira then is a, a magazine of feminist horror, so kind of growing out of Sabbat um, and other publishing projects that we're going to hear about a bit later. And then at the end we have Helen Jennings, who is the editorial director of Natal, uh, so a magazine of contemporary African fashion and art and music and other cool stuff. Um, the magazine grew out of uh, an existing online brand. Um, so kind of a, a different uh, situation to the, the other two, uh, with a really super confident start, like this big, heavy, thick, glossy magazine that just like was there on the shelves, like this, this really exciting new voice. So I, I want to start because part of this is about um, inspiration and, and kind of like coming away with ideas. Um, I'm going to start at the end with you, Helen. Why did you start making this print magazine in the first place? So my background is, is this working? My background is uh, journalism for more years than I care to mention. And for the last 10 years, I've been very much focused on global African creativity, um, music, fashion, art, film, you name it. I've been in that field for a very long time now. Um, and uh, it, Natal came about just the right people, the right time, the right place. I felt like I just really gelled with good people to make, to make Natal. Um, so our co-founders are Sarah Hemming, who's a creative director, and uh, Sarah San, who's our, our co-founder. And the energies were just right, and we, our contacts were just right, and everything was just right, and we all felt the same about what we were doing. Um, so we started online because it just seemed like, you, in this day and age, obviously you have to get your digital right first, you have to get your audience, you have to build your social, all those sort of things, and there's nothing wrong with being online, but Sarah and I are really old school and we love magazines and we've been doing magazines for years so that was always our sort of hope and our dream and also the people we work with all the artists we work with all the creators we work with we just felt like they were deserved to be in a big fat beautiful magazine so it took us two three years but yeah last year we landed with a bang <laughs> with a thump with a thump okay Elizabeth same question to you so what made you want to start making so, so that first of all, and then into Suspira. Um, well, oh, <laughs> that was so um, I was doing my masters, and I was very into witches and nineties witchcraft and sort of the pop cultural aspect of that, Charmed and Sabrina and all those things. I think I was also kind of an angry feminist at the time, but I wanted like an ironic output for it because I couldn't kind of claim the. Um, sort of very straight, um, like, uh, feminist mantle that was around me. So I wanted to sort of, like, hex people and be difficult, but I didn't really know um, how to kind of get that out there. And then I realised, like, witchcraft and feminism, there's an amazing combination. Um, and I did some zines, I did some things for myself, but it didn't really take off until I realised that there was a community on Instagram. Um, like hashtag the witches of Instagram and they had a very cool aesthetic and I started to reach out to people and from that like Sabbat like grew and the idea grew and it became this like printed version of something that I found online something very like current and then from that you so that was always gonna be a three-issue project yeah but it's led on to other stuff yeah um, so it, 
quite early on, I realized that it would be really cool to explore feminism and femininity through these three feminine archetypes uh, reflecting the three phases of the moon, the maiden, the mother and the crone, the waxing, the full and the waning. And um, that kind of became the template for Sabbath. So that's kind of the, the product, product that we set out to do. Okay, and so Cass, you know, I'm going to ask you, what made you want to start doing this in the first place? Uh, because I had no idea what else <laughs> I could do with my life. Like, I, uh, I don't know, I kind of graduated like a lot of people do. And I was kind of like, oh no, <laughs> like what, what do I do now? Um, and when I was a second year student, I started like a little zine project, which, uh, like around the time there'd been like a big, kind of like harassment campaign towards women called Gamergate, which I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with that, but that was a big thing. And uh, it was really embarrassing. Uh, I just felt like, I remember around the time just feeling like really like, just like ashamed about video games and about the culture of video games and stuff, and just kind of like, just a broader kind of um, perception of them. And it, I felt like it wasn't representative of like the games that I saw. So I thought, oh, I'll just make like a, like a kind of angry zine, and zines are often like about like rebellion and stuff, right? But like the thing about gamers is that they're always really, really angry. <laughs> so, so like if you want to do something that's rebelling against video games, you kind of have to be like really calm. <laughs> so that was my way of like. So I kind of made this like very inclusive, kind of like nice appealing little zine about video games, which uh, I wrote and I did all the art myself. And when I did it again for my final major project and I had no idea what, like nothing in my portfolio was really like standing out to people I don't think, but like that magazine got like a lot of attention online so I thought, oh there's like there might be something here. And I don't know, like I think just it was just about like pursuing, seeing how far I could take it really, because I knew it had legs but I just didn't know and then I did a Kickstarter around like a few months after graduating. And yeah, now here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so tell us about the Kickstarter because the, it, it was one of those campaigns where you got a lot more than you initially asked for. So yeah. I guess first of all, how do you do that? Uh, <laughs> uh, like, I think the thing to remember with like Kickstarter is that it's very much a storefront. So it works really well if you uh, are offering something material. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, I mean, Kickstarter wouldn't be happy with me saying this, but what really that whole campaign was, was people just um, buying the magazine up front, in a way. And then in, if enough people bought it up front, then we would be able to sort of um, fund and actually do the thing. So it was very much kind of like funding a magazine in reverse, where you kind of... Um, you're asking people to like commit to, do, yeah, to, to like the idea of it, to if people like it. And luckily, I think one thing that's like always been like on my side a bit is that it's like it struck a chord with people. I think there's a lot of people who feel kind of left out of uh, like the broader sort of gaming discussion, even though it's like the biggest entertainment industry in the world, and it makes more than like film, music, and television combined per year. Um, but yeah, despite that, like you know. Um, people don't feel included or people don't feel that it's for them, despite the fact that everyone's playing them. So there was already a huge audience and I just kind of had to, it's like presenting a good video, like a good video helps, just making sure that you have a magazine for 20 quid that people want to put in for. 
Um, I mean, that's like, I mean, I could talk about that for hours, really. I don't want to go into the rabbit hole. Of, like, well, I'll tell you, okay, we're, we're not going to have a whole night on Kickstarter, but I do think it's genuinely, I mean, it's how a lot of magazines get made these days. So, like, what's, what's like the best thing that you did with that Kickstarter campaign that you said like, everybody should do this if they're going to try and kickstart a mag? Uh, I, I, okay, so like, I had very, I, I was quite lucky in that the people writing for my magazine were already like very established people, so um, just off the strength of like my final major projects, I managed to get people to commit to sort of taking part who were already established game developers, or they were established like voice actors, or um, journalists, so people who already had followings on Twitter and social media, because I had nothing, like the magazine had zero followers, um, and you know we didn't have um, an audience to speak of. So it was all through the network of writers that we managed to get on board, um, spreading it on social media. And then obviously, when people see someone whose name that they like is you know involved in this thing, and it seems like an interesting idea, um, people are more likely to put money down. Um, I'm very lucky that a lot of people trusted me enough to sort of give me license to use their name. I think I think that's the main thing. I think. I mean, obviously, it's not just that. Obviously, it's also just making you have to show you have like a, a mock-up and a well-presented video. I think goes a long way. <laughs> like uh, the Kickstarter video was just me, kind of in like a Apple Johnny Ives kind of way, sitting and just talking <laughs> in a really sort of um, just kind of like relaxed way, in the same way I'm sort of speaking to you now uh, about what it is. And I think people. Uh, I think people like just having like a human element to it. So just being honest and making sure that you're um, that you're presenting yourself as well as possible. I think that's it. I think most Kickstarters are funded just because people glance at it and they think, "Well, yeah, this looks competent and coherent, and I like it." And they I, I trust that this guy can actually make a magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. important. The, and it also, so I mean, obviously, it's fantastic. It brings a lot of money. You get a lot of people signing up in advance, but you also found that it really brought a great sense of responsibility as well. Like, so right out of the gate, you, you had people who you were beholden to. Yeah, so like, um, I'm not sure how, I mean, you two might have um, different experiences to this, but um, I don't have a board of directors or investors. I have a thousand plus people who I have to report to all the time, which is different. I don't know, I don't know how it is, and I'd be really interested to hear how it is for you two with like how you guys get funding and who you speak to, but it's kind of like I had to go and do constant book reports to a thousand people just to make sure that they weren't gonna kill me because uh, <laughs> the magazine uh, was meant to take six months to make and it took me a year and a half, so that was a lot of delays. That was a lot of people having to wait a long time. Uh, and potentially people can get, like, sure they were fans and they were benevolent and stuff, but they could easily pick up the pitchforks if they wanted to, do you know what I mean? So it's just about constantly keeping like a high level of communication with like a thousand people and just having to constantly be, we messed up again. <laughs> it's, uh, it's gonna be delayed again. And I was really lucky in that because I did that. I think people would chill. The entire duration of the whole thing, people kind of understood, which was nice. Okay, so Elizabeth and Helen, I think I'm right in saying that neither of you kickstarted, is that correct? No? Okay, alright, so if you're not going to kickstarter, how do you get that first issue made? Um, me? E either of you. 
Um, well, I, I was lucky enough to have like a lump sum that I can, could start out with and we made something quite uh, a, a lot more humble in terms of production for our first issue. Um, it was a lot simpler. Um, it was still a lot about getting the right names on board, the right people on board, but maybe more for um, selling the idea, like a kind of weird idea of a witchcraft magazine. So it was important having uh, credible people with that as well. Um, but then we could sort of, after we sold out our first issue, we could do a reprint of the first issue and we could print our second issue and it sort of, it's grew out of that. And uh, we are, we're also really lucky to have a really big Instagram following because of this like link to the witches of Instagram that ended up being our main sort of channel to sell magazines and it like we could have a lot of direct sales which is better than doing like selling through district like uh, through stockists so um yeah i think it's still very very important what you said like to to have the right people on board from the start but um you can start out differently <laughs> so you, you managed to set it up so that you made the first one you sold it the yeah. money from the first one if the second one, yeah. so it actually keeps feeding itself. We, I mean, we printed a bit too few. I realized that we did a reprint, and and the the production costs of the first one was like a lot lower than what we ended up doing because it's fun to do exotic things. <laughs> <laughs> and Helen, how about you? So the, this was obviously the print magazine growing out of something else. So was. Was the other parts of Mattel was was that kind of uh, subsidising the print magazine? If only. No, not really. <laughs> um, it's all been. It very much began as a passion project. We just got to hit the ground and went running, and we're all a bunch of creators running the magazine. <laughs> business brain or investor or anything but we hope what our strength was having waited to launch the magazine is that we already had an audience where we had amazing people on board artists that people you know respect in the field um, so that did help build the magazine itself and get uh, you know faith from brands and what have you so there's a traditional approach in terms of really not advertisers and brand collaborations but a modern approach in terms of we could already offer them quite a lot of different ways they could get involved with us and so you had some adverts in that first issue. Mm -hmm. The type of magazine that you're making, so it's a lot of fashion, it's, it's big, thick, glossy magazine. I, I just sort of expect to see a bunch of advertising in there. Do, do, do you have plans to increase that in subsequent issues? We hope, we dream, yeah. <laughs> um, I think because of the nature of the, of the, the magazine, you have to be you have to set high standards, so you can't just take any old ads, obviously. So we very much, we, you know, we don't have a big advertising team, so we very much went to the brands we already had relationships with from the digital, who already had faith in us, and they invested in it. And then we, we got onto it, but we also did normal distribution and direct sales, so now that is small, small, bringing in funds that will help for the next issue as well. And then having, obviously, it was our first ones, so we had to learn as we went along, but now we've done it once, we've got a lot more to say for the next one. And you mentioned collaborations as well, so were there branded things in there that are not just a, like a display ad? Exactly, yeah. I think the days of just, I mean, unless you're content artist, I suppose, I think the days of just having 100 pages of ads and each one is 20 grand are probably gone for an indie. But also, the way the magazine world is going, and big magazines are folding, weeklies are folding, I think if you have a niche audience that you can you can tell a brand you're speaking direct to and are interested in what you're saying and it's not just another grassy or whatever, then they do have faith in you and they will get involved. Can, can you give us an example of like the, the sort of brand partnership stuff that you do? Yeah, the main one for issue one was Eden. 
So it's, um, it's a luxury brand made in Africa, but it was backed by LVMH. Um, so both Sarah and I have relationships with them going back on many other projects. We knew all the guys behind it. And when we told them we were going into print, they were like, yeah, absolutely. And it made perfect sense for us. And also, we had to be a brand that made sense. It can't just be, we'll take anybody's money, because it would just glare so badly on the page. So we gave them a good advert placement, and we did a brand collaboration shoot with a South African photographer. Um, uh, yeah, that was it, really. And then obviously, we gave them some, um, we launched a magazine at uh, our photography exhibition in New York, and we gave them a little presence there. Um, we had a singer who wore their clothes at the event, that kind of thing. So it's a little bit more of a subtle way of doing it, and more of an old, not, I can't call it authentic, but a natural way of doing it. It feels right. And, and so, it, the, you mentioned a, a photography um, launch uh, for the magazine. Photography is very important to the magazine as a whole, I think. Like the identity of it really comes for me through the photography to a, a great extent. How did you first go about making those connections with people? I mean, the, is this literally something that you knew them all already anyway, or did you actually have to go out and start saying, well, okay, so who do we want to shoot for us? Um, well, both Sarah and I have lots of relationships already from our previous experiences. So Sarah's background, she was the um, art director for another magazine, and I used to do edit a magazine called Arise, which is Africa-focused. So we already had our own relationships, and then together we brought those together. And then when Natal launched, it did go down quite well, so people came to us. And what's been the most beautiful thing of doing Natal is that the absolute newbies, like you know, new photographers, new stylists, new writers, just come to you like, all day long. They want to be part of it, and that's what we're here for. We're here to give them a platform and give them a, something that's worthy of their work. So old and new, big and small, it was really important for us in issue one to give them all a chance to be in it. So absolute, somebody's just done their, well, maybe their fourth shoot, through to like a Vivian Sasser and did a shoot. So it's absolutely across the gamut, and I think that's what we were really um, focused on doing. And it sounds like that's something you're just very comfortable with anyway. I mean, you've been doing this a long time, you know these people. Was there anything on that commissioning side of like actually getting the content in for the Mac where you were actually really biting your nails? Yes. <laughs> our two main shoots were on down to the nail, like insane. Our two, we had two covers, and our first two, our, both of those shoots were the last shoots that came in. Because obviously you're dealing with lots of people, lots of schedules, bigger models, this and that, uh, bigger productions. One happened in London, one happened in Dakar. Um, yeah, it really was up to the nail, but they both landed. It was a beautiful thing, thank God. <laughs> and what are you doing differently for the second issue as a result of all of that? Um, Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we're probably giving ourselves a harder time, actually. I think we're hoping we can do it a bit quicker. Um, obviously, you learn from... We have a form now that we're, we can obviously build on. It's not perfect by any stretch. But it is the way the nature of the beats, you know, it's an independent magazine, you're not throwing loads of money at people, so it is very much a love project, and people getting involved who want to be, who like the first issue, or in the first issue, how do you move that on? Um, yeah, same again, but hopefully a bit better. And I guess, how do you keep it interesting for yourself as well, because, that, I mean, that's got to be the, that's going to be a massive part of it, is you've got to be excited by this thing. Yeah, exactly, I mean, we were, we tried to go big and bold for the first one, so that's the target now, how do you go bigger and bolder? Not necessarily more pages, but Sarah has other ideas. But um, yeah, how do we work with the next, the next new generation, the next cool person, the next one who wants to get involved, how do we find them, how do they find us? You know, people who got away from us the first issue because of schedules, 
how do we work with them? How do we get a bigger name? You know, how do we find out who we should be working with next? You know, but that's that's the fun part. Cass, you mentioned earlier that so you think that in the Kickstarter campaign it was really important having these names from the industry in there. Yeah. So when you're just a student who's doing this thing which is your final project, which is like, yeah, great, but I mean that's your final project. How do you go about convincing someone who's like really busy and like, you know, has just got lots of other things to do? How do you convince them to spend time doing your thing? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> no, uh, I was lucky, actually, because like I had two things going for me. One was that um, my final major projects, because I did it at uni and I had um, help of photograph technicians to make it, you know, photograph it nicely. I, I had presentable good images of a high quality thing that I was able to send to people. Um, the other big advantage I had is that I wasn't entirely on my own at this point, so I'd managed to get um, games a games journalist called Jonathan who'd um, helped me quite a like like who'd written actually for the second version of my zine, because at first I was writing everything for myself, uh, by myself rather, and drawing everything myself, which is just not sustainable if you want to do something. Don't do everything yourselves, it's mad. Um, but you know he's an actual he was an actual journalist with connections and sort of he liked the project and sort of he started helping out and sort of helped me put in touch with people and then on top of that uh, I managed to get I managed to meet up with Darren Wall who is a um, art director and editor of a video games book publishing company called Read Only Memory um, and does he does fantastic work I mean he's great and he kind of believed in the project as well we, we met we spoke and he kind of um, sort of helped me out with sort of he allowed me to sort of stick his name onto the project and sort of helped godfather me for it because I mean doing something on a zine level and then making and manufacturing and fulfilling ship shipment and all of these different things these are things like you know they don't teach you that at uni so um, having people who liked the core idea enough to be willing to be like yes I will stick uh, I will stick my sort of like my name on this you know helped me a lot so through there I was able to sort of slowly gradually get a network and it helped because you know they genuinely believed in it and they were you know they were writing to people for it and when I wrote to people and I was like hi do you want to write for this magazine and then I mentioned that it's already got the seal of approval from established people and that helped me massively so it all kind of like coalesced quite naturally I think for me but to be honest like to answer the first question like I'm still it's still not a guarantee I'm still struggling <laughs> to get people to um, commit 100% you know because a lot of the writers I'm asking for they aren't, they aren't writers by trade you know um, some of the artists aren't even just straight up illustrators by, change, by trade they're animators for games or they're you know they they're busy people, so it's always a challenge to, to sort of get people on board. Yeah. And Elizabeth, so you, you went from your first version of Stats, yeah. which was the, the university version, and just came out and was just like, uh, yeah, like you yeah. say, you, you, you like hit on something, you, know, you, you tapped into something, but then the second issue was just this like massive step up from there again. So what, what happened between one and two to, to make this difference? So for me, I mean, the first issue was actually the thing that I did as my master's thesis. And I realized the summer when I was like, the summer before my hand in, 
I was in Los Angeles and I was like interviewing this witch poet woman and I was lying so much about like this is gonna be a real magazine and it's like it's it's definitely gonna be a thing and, and I'd lied so much that I just realized that now I have to do it. Like there was like no choice, absolutely no choice of backing out. And um, I really recommend that if you're a person who sort of like usually fulfills on what you do, um, because then you, yeah, you cannot do anything about that. So that was from my uni project. So when I was doing my uni project, I sort of knew that this has to be a thing in the real world. But the thing that I published in March, I, I, I like, uh, handed it in in the end of November, and I reviewed it, and I published it in March. Um, that thing was still my uni project. It was still like this like training project that I did. Um, and the next one that Tabor and I did together, the mother issue, was definitely a step up. Both because we sort of this was the second thing that we did together, and we. So, so you say Clemo is a designer. That, yeah, um, he's my wonderful graphic designer, um, art director, um, half of Sabat. Um, I wish he was here. Um, he was. He's also like a Brazilian warlock. Um, so he has like a lot of um, sort of symbolical, like um, artistic reference when he makes Sabat. He's brilliant. Um, so basically, uh, we realized that we really liked uh, this very like um, complicated technical production, and we wanted to make Sava a an object that felt magical, that had all of these like different sides and details and quirky little bits to it that you would discover as you discover the magazine. You'd flip through it once, you'd see, you'd see one thing, and you'd look at it again, and you see something else. It it was just this like. Um, engagement that was very important to us and I think we that clicked with us in the mother issue like we realized that that was what we thought was fun and then um, in the current issue we sort of took that to another level again so the, the like for example there are like uh, there's text written in like spot varnish so that you only see it if the light catches it a particular way. Yeah. There's writing that's written backwards that you have to view through the page to yeah. see it. There's like text written down the sides yeah. of the page <laughs> only reveals itself. Yeah. If you're there's the a magazine. growing fetus that becomes a growing moon on like the side of the magazine. And I felt we sort of got into like our kind of gory. Um, like confidence in the second issue, and that was that was really uh, a really good space. I was sort of like we tried to match what we did first time, but then it got like it became a lot better than the first one. Uh, and so some of that stuff is just like it's just clever design. Like, yeah, uh, you know, it probably doesn't cost a, a whole lot more to print something no. backwards, say. But some of it is just is actual real nuts and bolts production as well. And uh, yeah, so like. Did you have some mistakes? I seem to remember on the the making of. Well, was it was it that the the text on the side was not supposed to be where it was, but then it printed like that? Yeah, that was on the first issue actually. That was like a glitch. So, um, that we were supposed to print like the text. Uh, it says the maiden issue very big on the spine, and it was supposed to be on the spine. But then it ended up being like half on the front and half on the spine. Uh, or like maybe one third on the front and two thirds on the spine and I'm like oh my god that's so cool we should do that <laughs> so we ended up doing that and that became like a sort of signum of Sabbat another thing that we wanted to do for the first issue that we didn't like we couldn't afford for the first issue was to spray the sides 
like of the magazines, so they were the same color as the the cover, um, or black or something. But then Clever realized that we could do this like cool technique where when you flip it, you kind of you kind of micro uh, you put in like a little millimeter design on each page. So when you do this, you get an image, and then when you do this with the other side, you get another image. So um, that was that costs nothing to do, but the spraying was super expensive. So it's so yeah. actually like you can come up with like a clever little solution to yeah. that. And, and and I've got to say, like in reading that as well, it's then just the most beautiful surprise when you realise that there's like something there, and you're like, yeah. What's <laughs> This child. <laughs> um, no, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I, I definitely um, felt that that was a, a sort of um, a little hack that we did way after we sort of dismissed the initial idea. And a lot of the time that happens, like you have a really cool idea, but you can't do it, and then you shelf it, and then it comes out in a whole nother format in a lot like a better way. Um, and it's maybe not the sort of Sometimes it's a happy accident, sometimes it's something that you just like take out two years later and you're like, wow, this is going to work really well. Uh, and Cass, you also, you kind of went to town with yours as well. So you've got all this Kickstarter money and so you start throwing in like glow-in-the-dark covers and gatefolds and stuff. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it was tough. It was like, uh, so I was in a weird situation because we got twice as much money than we asked for for the Kickstarter, which was great. but. I also asked for, um, I also asked for, you know, I was pitching for something that was 100 pages. Uh, then what we happened is we had a bunch of writers and stuff pull out because they had other commitments and stuff um, a few months into the project, which was terrible. Uh, and, you know, that caused a lot of delays and I had to find new writers of a similar level to sort of replace them. So as things got delayed more and more and more, I kind of realized I had a choice between you know, time is money sort of thing. So I thought, it's getting to the point now where I can either make two really bad magazines with this money, or I can make one really, 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 really good one. So I put all of the money that I could into just making this, um, making this issue like the best thing it possibly could be. And it felt really high stakes as well, because this, this was the first thing I'd done, you know, not in my life, but like it felt like the, the first thing that I'd done as like a designer. And I felt that if I screwed this up, it would be the end of me. So I wanted to make sure that it was as good as possible. So we started investing in sort of gatefold sleeves and, you know, just like loads of different stuff that we were just trying to figure out how to do. Like the Glow in the Dark cover was important because that was a higher Kickstarter reward, which meant it motivated people to donate more money, which is a good thing. Um, but. So much of it was just about the sort of pressure of expectation. Because when something takes a year plus to make, you really have to, I felt that if this didn't blow people away, the chances of getting to do a second issue would be much, much harder. So I think it was like the right choice. I just don't know um, if I would recommend it. But I'm super proud of just all the different um, fold-out sections for Glow in the Dark. We did a risograph print with Hatto Press here in London. Uh, just yeah, really trying to, a key thing for me is that, like, what's the point of making a physical gaming magazine in this day and age, or a physical, I mean, you could broaden that out to be like, what's the point of print in this day and age with the internet and everything, but it's about, it's about selling the idea of like, um, that physical media can do stuff that digital just can't. Um, 
the nice thing about it as well is that you know trying to hone in on that means that you you end up with a beautiful object at the end. I'm I don't really care much about witchcraft. I I don't have a big interest in it, but I really want to read this magazine, and I'm sure when I do, I will become like an expert in witchcraft because like books are a bridge between interests, which is what's so amazing about them. So if you can like. I think if you're making an independent magazine nowadays, you really have to just embrace like the physical nature of this and why this needs to be physical and not just a thing that you can read on a blog on, on, on a website, do you know what I mean? So yeah, that was the thinking at least behind why a fan of time became so bloated, became twice as big and you know, all of that. So, so yours kind of grew because it had to, and Helen, you alluded before that, so Natal ended up getting bigger and bigger and this was the creative director saying it has to be, I mean, for me, it feels like this magazine has to be as big as it is. Like, it's just got a physical presence to it. I mean, can we expect it to keep on growing? We'll see, we'll see, maybe. But no, we, we were, obviously, we both agreed that it had to be something special. Uh, a, it's an annual magazine. <coughs> B, we've already, you know, we've been around. We'd, we'd already developed what we were doing together, so why not? Um, see the visual element is so important so you know no point bringing out a little photocopy thing i think we still surprise people with quite how sort of grown up it looked for the first one um but you know we just couldn't help ourselves basically <laughs> so so what was your starting point when you went to the printer did you go there saying it's like this it's either you know and putting down like you know another magazine in front of them, or was it more like you went to the printer and said, well, tell me what we can do? What was your process? Oh, so we have a lovely design team. We've got Lauren at the back um, and Ben, and we had so many brilliant ideas that we couldn't afford to do them. So we, have, you know, we had ideas, five paper stocks, sil silver edges, cutouts, cardboard, I mean, you name it. We didn't go that wacky because we couldn't afford it, but also we didn't necessarily need to because we are about the photography and we're also about the long-form journalism. So like to speak to what you said, it's not about itty-bitty bloggy content, it's about big reads and beautiful pictures and we want it to be something that people keep and you know, that coffee table moment. Um, and we both come from that background, so it was pretty much staying in that world. How big, and then, but then obviously the printers did advise in terms of how big you can go in it uh, within certain paper stocks and all that sort of stuff. So we knew our maximum size. Um, we had two paper stocks in the end um, related to the types of content that we had in there. Um, and then we just we just went in on making it as you know beautifully printed and, and visually resting and editorially exciting as we could. So that, so you managed to get away with just printing it once. So you, you had one print run, and that was it. That was painful enough, yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, you had two print runs. Yeah. So for the first issue. Yeah, so. yeah. And Cass, you also had to reprint. Mm. <laughs> so as I said at the beginning, things kind of went wrong there. So give, give us, fill us in. Uh, I, had a, I had a printing company run away with my money. So I had, a, I had a company in Croatia which did amazing work and uh, they did our first print run and the momentum for the magazine when it was launching was really high, like we were selling so quickly, I was, I was amazed. Um, so I thought, okay, well, let's print more, you know, and I think if we do it in time for Christmas and stuff, that would be great, you know, we can, you know, I thought it would be done way earlier than that, I thought it would take a, a few weeks, a month maybe. Um, but yeah, they kind of just like... This is Christmas 2000 and... This is last Christmas, yeah. 17, 18. It, it's 18, yeah, it's yeah, 18. Yeah, 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 yeah. Last year. 
So yeah, they kind of, um, I think they hit like financial trouble or something. So they kind of stopped returning my calls and kind of started avoiding me. And like that was, you know, there was, luckily it wasn't the entire payment for the magazine. It was uh, only the first half. Uh, but that's still, you know, when you're a small company as well, that's like a, like, a, even just a few grand can really mess things up. So, like, it's, and it's not even like the delay that annoyed me, really. It was more just the fact that they kept stringing me along. And, like, I couldn't plan. And it was getting to the point where I would completely miss the entirety of, like, the Christmas, the Christmas world, because I really wanted to, there to be copies for people, so. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I'm going to be honest, it was probably the worst part of the entire process. I mean, can I, if I can be real with people, um, the only reason I'm like I'm making an issue too now, but the only reason I'm doing that is because enough time has passed that I've forgotten how bad it was making the first one. <laughs> I'm not even joking. That's the truth of the matter. Uh, you've really got to stuff like stuff is going to go wrong. If anyone tells you that it's not a complete train wreck, they're lying. Um, it always is behind the scenes, and you've like the desire for like uh, recognition or anything is not going to sort of it's not going to keep you going during the making of this thing if you want to if you if you really do want to go out and make something it's entirely going to be about you have to really really love the thing that you're doing otherwise like i mean you you definitely won't come back for a second time do you know what i mean <laughs> so. i like it good so you're you're have you had any developments with the guys in croatia is it nah but to be honest like i think that's just like the european courts moving slowly but yeah i had to i have to go through like european courts and i had to consult a lawyer and stuff. This is not what I signed up for. I just, like, like, I just want to talk about video games and sort of sit in my room. I don't, I don't want to get involved with like lawyers and stuff. I think like it's it's something that I think is universal to everyone who I speak to. And I, I think we've spoken about this before, but like, we don't really want to be business people. Do you know what I mean? Like we want to, we want to make beautiful things and sort of have other, you know, just like put it out there. Or we have a message, we have something that we're trying to communicate, but none of us are like, I want to be a CEO and like sit down and like try and deal with stocks or like, I don't know, like it's just, uh, I don't know, maybe, actually I'm speaking, maybe you guys love the business side of it, I don't know. I don't love the business side of independent magazines. Good, no. good. <laughs> I was really worried about it for a second, I was like, oh crap. <laughs> I know you don't like the business side. No. <laughs> okay, there you go. Nobody gets into this to do the business side. That's fine. But you just have to do it. So, okay, so we're going to finish up with this first section. And I want to talk a little bit about distribution. And with all of these other sections, I've had, like, particular questions for each of you. But I just know distribution is such a difficult and messy place. I'd rather just say, like, What's really good? Like, what, what, what would you advise people should do for distribution? Um, I think for us, it was really important to... Uh, first, I thought about working with a distributor, um, but then I realized that like they tear the cover off of your magazine if you don't sell within the sales period, and it felt so sad making something so beautiful and then like shredding it afterwards and kind of unsustainable and not with the witchcraft earthy ethos. Um, and then secondly, um, they didn't really distribute to the shops, like half the shops that buy stuff at now I realize are like witchcraft shops. So we have like a sort of art book market and or art book shops. And then we have witchcraft shops and they're not part of that distribution network. So it was really important for us to set up our whole like 
different stock is based because you couldn't be with just a, like an ordinary distributor. You would have to have like your, your witchcraft contacts and they sell really well in the witchcraft shops. So. And so is that literally you with a spreadsheet and boxes of magazines? Um, no, so it was me with um, uh, spreadsheets and boxes of magazines and uh, like a sort of wheelie thing to the post office. That was absolutely dreadful. Um, I figured like after we sold so many copies for the, the maiden issue in the beginning, I was just like, oh my god, I cannot do this. Even though I now have like an intern who can help me, I still couldn't do that. Um, so we found a distributor or like a shipper in, in Germany that works with our printers. So they ship stuff for us now. And that's a lot cheaper than if we were shipping it ourselves. Like they get sort of a third of the price on like DHL and everything. So that's been really good. But just deciding like what shops your magazine goes to can be very relevant. It's not very relevant for everyone, but if you do something really specific, then it is. Uh, and it helps that you're not physically having to carry boxes of magazines. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think I would only have made one issue. <laughs> Helen, how about you and Natal? Uh, we kind of went at it at all angles, but not with any kind of system. So we had a distributor who went, to, who does all the usual, you know, then they, but we did feel this issue was a bit too scattergun and with a niche publication maybe that wasn't necessarily done the way we would want and also I didn't, I was so stupid I didn't realise about the whole ripping off the cover thing and got halfway through so then I was like, oh, <laughs> he just killed me. So there may be people in the room who are uninitiated on this, so t tell us about that. So you, yeah, you, you deliver your magazines to the distributor, they do share their list with you but I didn't feel like we had full control of where it went and I assumed we'd at least get some back that were unsolved, but um, you don't get anything back. So. It's a way to sort of, uh, for them to uh, make, uh, like, isn't it that ABC, this like advertising thing as well? Like they, they sort of rate your magazine and like how it sells and then you get the covers back to see how many didn't sell. So you get back your like unsold covers, but then like there are like lots of amputated magazines out there. But. And then WH Smith have their own system again, so it's kind of like a privilege to be in WH Smith, so they have their own channels. Um, then we did um, our own direct sales to uh, boutiques and museums and concept stores that are relevant to us, like yourself. Um, but our challenge then was a lot of those stores are in Africa and there is no distribution beyond South Africa and even that's a struggle. So, and then shipping to, to South Africa is prohibitive for such a heavy publication which is relatively low value. So that's been a bit of a suitcase situation. Whenever I travel, I kind of take it to the cool stores, so that's not very highbrow. Um, and then we do direct sales on the website and that's worked really well. I think if people already know who you are, they will find you and they will buy it online. Um, so we've gone at it every single way. And we will obviously tweak it for the second issue. And if you're selling online, then you keep all of the money when someone buys a magazine from you. Exactly, yeah. Other than things like PayPal and all those lovely right. yeah, yeah. financial systems take from you. Uh, and Kessa, do you work with a distributor as well as doing your own like distribution? Uh, I mean, my setup's a bit... I mean, I'm just shocked that they, do they really tear up magazines? Is that really a thing? <laughs> like, You're not going across this yet. No, 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 this is new to me. I'm just like, my mouth's like a gape. I don't know what to say. That's, that's messed up. So, so to, <laughs> to prove that your magazine hasn't sold, yeah. they'll tear the cover off the front, or they'll like slice a piece off the cover. That's like mafia stuff. Yeah. Like, why would they do that? <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so that, yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's not, true. Not, I actually should say, not all distributors and not all retailers, like the, you can find ways around it. Right. But, the, but the also then the, pro, the question is, like, so you've had these Macs which have sat out on the shelf for four months, six months. They're not going to be pristine. They're, and also you've got a new one coming. So, assuming you haven't sold all those copies, what are you going to do with them? Like, the, you know, do, you, do you want to pay to have them sent back to you? The, like, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm glad I don't have to deal with any of that. Uh, <laughs> um, so, like, what I do is that I just have, I basically, I don't really try and sell stuff through wholesalers, through shops and stuff, unless I really care about the brand or I think it will be good for my brand. So, luckily, I'm, I mean, I'm at the point where I'm, Still not at the point where I'm printing as many copies as I'd like. So we're printing. We've we printed about like I think five thousand copies to date of issue one, something close to that. Um, and they all sold directly through like us through our website, um, which so there's no middleman. Um, but we do have a few. I mean, I have it in a few places. I have it like at the VNA, the Tate Modern, um, Mag Culture, just places that I think would be like. Um, no, prestigious places to have it and which sort of elevate the brand. Because I'll, I'll, honestly, um, I'm not printing enough yet to the point where I think I get, and I would like, it's not really that financially great for the magazine. Like if I get people to buy it from me directly, that cuts out so much, um, that cut, like, there's like so much more profit per issue. And actually, when you're starting out, you need all the money you can get sort of thing. So yeah, that's the situation I'm at. I have a UK sh um, fulfillment company. They just hold onto my magazines. They look after them. They don't tear them up or anything, and they just package it for me and they send it out to our customers each week. So, yeah. Which is, I don't know, a bit easier, I think. Okay, I think this is a good place to bring the first part to an end. Um, this is a very independent magazine-y thing, like if you ask people, they will tell you all their secrets about what they've been doing all the rest of it, but I still think it's really good of you all to come out and sign one. So could we have a round of applause, please, for the I bet there's quite a few people in the room, so um, if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up, I'll come over to you, give you the microphone, and then we'd have to like repeat questions and stuff like that. So does, does anyone have a question they'd like to start us off with? No, you know you launch events. Um, how how do you go about like um, promoting them, like doing press releases to influences and stuff? Um, so we already had started to do events, so we partner with art fairs and music festivals and we do salons and talks and what have you, but our main event is a photography show that we do at Red Tech Labs in Brooklyn. So it's an event already, so we're lucky that we have the, um, the team at their end to help. But I write the press release, they send it out, we send it out, but there is no PR company, so it really is riffing on their their contacts and our contacts, obviously social media beyond. Um, but again, we're kind of not shy people, but we're not. We have our limits in terms of how much we want to shout about ourselves. So that's not really very modern. But we do, we do social, we do the press release, we do our own contacts, we do personal contacts. Um, yeah, just really hand to mouth and just absolutely hitting up your database as much as you can bear, really. Newsletters. You know. How about you two? How do you promote this then? 
Um, so we, we promote a lot through, through Instagram and social media, but we also realize that a lot of our customer base is in the US, it's not necessarily like in metropolitan London. So when we try to do launch events, um, it would be like a certain London group of people that would come, but it would nev like never be the like representative Sabat crowd really. So it's kind of like a segment of our, our audience that would come to that sort of thing. And I think we sort of started being a bit more aware of that and seeing like, okay, what do they want rather than trying to cater to a an Instagram crowd in that way. So we, we treated it more as just like a fun party at the end of the day and just invited whoever we liked, but we didn't take it too seriously or to like make it too professional. Because also events are stressful. Events are very stressful. It's, it's, I mean, like, it's, it's all gone well tonight, you're all here, but like, it could easily just not have happened. The, like, when you're making a magazine, you've got months or whatever it is to like gradually accumulate this thing, and then you print it, and it's as close to perfect as you can get it, and that's the thing. Whereas when you do an event, you put all the work in, and then it rains, and nobody comes. It, like, it's very, very, I find it very stressful. Yeah, so stressful. Anxiety-inducing. <laughs> And, and also, like we, we said before, I mean, it's like we were in it to maybe do the business side of it, but I'm not like a PR person, so like I don't really know how to do events. <laughs> but then you just like, you do them and then you see what works and you fail a lot of times. <laughs> Cass, have you had a, a party? I, I've never done a launch event. I think my launch event was that I just slept for a bit. I was like so exhausted when it was done. Um, I do do, I do make and build my own like press releases though. So like when I'm trying to when I was trying to do the Kickstarter, I made sure that I did like a press release for the Kickstarter and make sure that it was really well presented and send it to a bunch of games journalists. And that's a big part. Actually, I should have said that when you asked Dan. I forgot. <laughs> but like um, I sent out like press releases to sort of journalists that were relevant to the field that I was talking about. So for mine, it was like games journalists and sort of sent that out and make sure to like attach. Uh, a few like nice JPEGs into my emails so that even if they were just skimming they would at least see the thumbnails of some nice looking thing and it might catch their attention but um, yeah that's a big part of like why I got funded I think the ability to like make a well-produced press package uh, is like a really good skill um, and it's not as hard as it might seem as well if that if that helps any other questions for us Uh, I was just wondering about having your own space when working on a magazine. So I'm working on a magazine now, and I'm not too sure how, how important it is to have like like a like studio space to work from, or if you guys are like working from home, or if you can talk about like advantages or disadvantages of working from home or from a studio space, and what you'd say is the best. But that's a decent question. Um, so my team all over the place, so we're all freelancers, we all work, we do lots of other different things. Um, so sometimes I work from home, sometimes I work uh, with the team, I mean, um, my co-founder has a studio in Dalston, but it was kind of comical when it was coming to the final crunch of the actual magazine, because the design, the other design team um, was somewhere in Hackney, so I spent all my days going, where well, I live in Brixton, to Hackney, to Dalston, to Brixton, to Hackney, to Dalston, to Brixton. <laughs> Hackney to Dilston. Um, that's fine. I think it's obviously very important to bring your people together at least as much as you possibly can, but also whatever works for you. If you've got to crunch through your copy or your editing, whatever it is you're doing, then that's fine. 
Elizabeth, tell us about making the first issue with Kleber. Um, so uh, Kleber and I, or I like, I kind of found Kleber on Behance, and I he was the first portfolio that stood out to me, and I emailed him about this like witchcraft magazine that I wanted to make, and I was sure that I would be completely rejected. And he was like, oh no, that's, this is so cool. Um, and the only thing was that he was an LCC master's graduate, but he had just moved back to Brazil due to his visa. So we never met really until the SPAC award ceremony for the second issue, because that was like when he got his uh, um, Italian passport and he can like be in Europe again. Um, so we Skyped a lot, and like we ch we used Flee for like lots of chat functions, and it was completely fine. Like we never really needed to meet, and like throughout doing this, the third issue and other projects, we don't really see each other face to face. We just like I'm on my sofa, and he's wherever he is, and um, that's very comfortable. And uh, yeah, your sofa is very comfortable. My sofa is immensely comfortable. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I work from home, and all of the people involved in my magazine work from home. And by that, I mean, like, the other two people who help me. Um, so Darren's based in Spain, uh, so often what we do is just, yeah, just Skype conversations and sort of... I think studio spaces are, are nice, but I think they're a luxury. I don't think they're at all necessary for you to make or do anything. Uh, age in which we live but I totally understand because there are days when I'm sick of it and the, you know it's it, if you're making something at home it's really good to just find like co-working spaces that's something I really recommend there are loads around here I know it's a bit cliche to be like another person with a MacBook in a coffee shop but like honestly it's uh, it's healthier I think than just sticking in I mean the sofa's great don't get me wrong I love the sofa yeah but it's nice to kind of go somewhere and feel yeah. like like I'm part of the people who go somewhere to work yeah, yeah. like that's like a feeling onto itself like you feel like you're contributing to like the like the, I don't know economy or something yeah all those teas <laughs> all those teas and biscuits yeah. it's yeah. also the nice when you get to do that as a little treat rather than it's just like every day in the same yeah. cafe people hating you for taking their table. I yeah. Hi. Hi. Do you guys have any advice for approaching um, partners that you think might amplify your brand or that could help you a little bit financially? I haven't really done this. I mean, I, for me, like every single person who I get to write is that. So I think, I mean, I know when I'm looking for anyone to sort of collaborate with, Regardless, I'm not sure, are you talking about just people to work with or are you talking specifically about brands? I've never, I, I, I deliberately have chosen not to do that because I just don't want to have other people having a say in... Did they approach you? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I approached them actually because I wanted it. Cause, so, so that was because, you know, there's a, this big video games exhibition at the V&A right now. I thought it was like good timing. So I just kind of, I kind of muscled my way in just asking. Um, and I met the curator of the show at like a Christmas party the year previously. So yeah, that was just like a happy coincidence, really. Yeah. And for us, it's just very organic. We just um, we do get approached a lot from different brands and associations and institutions and what have you. But also, you're just riffing on our own contacts, really. But you know, we we try not to be shy about approaching a brand if we think it feels right for them. Like we're not trying to oversell ourselves. If it, if it makes natural sense, why wouldn't they be interested in how we do it? 
we're not just going to go crazy and approach any old, you know, waste our time trying to approach people who wouldn't be interested. Um, so yeah, I think it's just about filling the time, developing those natural natural contacts, you know, showing them a bit of love, you know, giving them a bit of free editorial, that kind of thing, and then eventually the sweet, the sweet spot comes. <laughs> I was interested in the fulfillment company that you were talking about, like, I didn't know that that existed, that you can get a company that will package your magazine and, and distribute it, is, is that what it is, and how do you go about that? <laughs> Well, like, what you'll often find is that printers will have, like, distribution companies that they know of or work with. Um, usually what happens is you, like, you open up an account with a company, and you top in that, you know, you pay into that account every time you need to pay to ship some stuff off. Um, so the way it works is that, like, rather than them getting, like, a royalty or something per issue, they are being paid just per job. So... You know, if you sell a lot of magazines, you'll be paying them a lot more to send them out. And if you... Is a fulfillment company the same as a distribution company? Is that the same thing? Uh, necessarily... Yeah, yeah. Or is it? It depends. Because, I don't know, I think, I mean, I, well, you know, I mean, Steve maybe, you know, <laughs> he looks like he knows. Yeah, Steve, you take this. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I would say... <laughs> I see the difference between a distributor and a fulfillment house is um, fulfillment will hold your magazines and if you send a spreadsheet with a bunch of people to send them to, they will package them up and send them out and often do it at a much better rate than you could get because they're doing a high volume of mail. A distributor, their value comes from having the network of shops that they're going to go and take the magazines to and so that's where, kind of, that's where their cup comes in because they're making sure that you're in like, yeah, well, whichever shops it is. But then, as um, I think it was Elizabeth who pointed out, actually, for a lot of the independent magazines, like being in newsagents and magazine shops is good. That's definitely a good thing. But you really want to make sure that you're in the shops. That yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're like an upmarket booze magazine, you want to be in the nice off licenses. And a, a, a typical magazine distributor will not be taking magazines to those places. Like, obviously you have to pay the fulfillment company, but they, they would be, are they cheaper than the distributor? Okay, so, so, it's a, probably people over here can't hear, so, the, so um, my plan of passing the mic microphone around has just fallen apart already. <laughs> so the, so the, the question was, is it, um, did, did the fulfillment company take a cut? Um, yes, they do, but the idea is that even with them taking a percentage, you're still playing, paying quite a lot less than you would be paying if you were just going to the post office and, and sending stuff out. So basically, like so with Stack, for example, at the beginning, I literally just took stuff to the post office and then we started using like a Royal Mail like software thing so you could print your own postage, but then we went to a fulfillment house and that's where you get the much better rates. And it's cheaper than those? So distribution is is a whole other thing, okay. which is so so like just just by like very rough kind of rule of thumb, um, if you're selling your magazine in a shop with a distributor, actually I'd be really interested to see how this compares to you guys. So I would say that the retailer probably is going to take about twenty percent, the distributor is probably going to take about twenty, thirty percent. So that's probably about fifty percent of the cover price, which is going to to them. How, how does that sit with you guys? Is that about right? Mm, well, yeah, about right. 
our stock is, can take up to 40%, but it's still better than having two people taking a cut. So we can sort of negotiate it. When Sabat was like a new thing and um, people didn't know about it, there was no kind of demand for it, we would accept like stock is taking a higher percentage just because we wanted to be in certain shops. But as Sabat is sort of grown, we can push that percentage down and then our cut becomes bigger. But we don't have like two people taking a cut or two companies taking a cut. So, so the difference there is like, so say with a distributor, you might have like say half of the cover price of the magazine is not going to you. Yeah. Whereas with shipping, say it costs you like, I don't know, £1.20 to send it out. Maybe you just add that on top of the cost of, like if someone buys a maximum from your site, then they maybe pay £1.20 shipping. So the cost is there, but it doesn't come out of your share necessarily. Uh, thank you. I'm trying to see if there's any, there's no hands over here. All these people sitting in the dark over here. <laughs> no? Got loads of hands over here. Um. Hiya. Um, how do you know how much money should you pay to your contributors? Good question. How, how do you, do, well, so I guess first of all, do you pay your contributors? And if so, how do you know how much you're paying? Um, so for us, we pay some people um, quite well, and we pay we don't pay other like a lot of people because um, I feel like when we were, when I first started making stuff, I I realized that there were we needed to have good writing, we needed to have certain voices in the magazine, and those people we needed to pay uh, usually unless I could sort of talk them into it somehow. Um, and that became like the core of the magazine. But as the magazine grew, we got a lot of uh, contributors coming in and a lot of that is like not super high quality. So it requires a lot of me, like from me as an editor, a lot of my work to go into going through the quality of the contributions, maybe helping people get a foot in the door of writing something. Um, and also it's been really important for Sabah to include the voices of quite like diverse uh, communities of witches where the writers are not necessarily um, very qualified writers, but they're interesting voices. So you have all of those kind of aspects coming into it where um, it's not necessarily like, oh, you pay a great writer a great rate, but you want a certain voice in the magazine. It will still take a lot of work from the editorial team making me to make it like a good standard, but we want it there anyway. So it's kind of, it depends on 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 what you what you want and it's like kind of a composition out of different different sort of voices and aspects. Um like so for me I because so many of the people that a lot of the people that write for me don't really need the money particularly. A lot of these people are like very established in other fields and they're doing it as like a favour. Um I still make sure that I, I really want to make sure that everyone gets paid. Um, so for writers, I have like a flat rate where I pay them per word. So that means that like they get a certain like amount of pence per word. So um, so that is like standard across all writing, regardless of like. What, what do you pay per word? I pay fifteen pence per word, which is like a stat. It's like a, it's like a standard rate. I want to get to the point where like I'm paying people twenty pence per word, twenty p. Um, but it's just like the nature of like starting out. But, like that's a like that's a decent ish rate, I think. Um, I mean, people seem to be happy to work with that. And then there's the, um, like, you know, going beyond that for, like, illustration. That's where things get a lot more varied in terms of sort of paying people. Um, 
my magazine, Profound Waste of Time, we have a rule that there's no screenshots or no game imagery. We try and make sure that every single page is bespoke illustration. So everything is built from the ground up. So we work with a lot of illustrators to make that work. Um, and so with that, there's like a huge amount of variation. Uh, and it's weird as well because I'm an illustrator myself and I know that like illustration is very undervalued as sort of a profession and I don't want to be Oh, it's like a weird tightrope to walk because I don't want to perpetuate a system in which illustrators aren't being paid very much But the reality of making print in this day and age and also being a small company just means that it's I don't know it's like it's hard, but I, I pay I pay illustrators pretty well. I think the average I pay I mean it's like it's actually I probably couldn't even pull out an average because it varies so much it goes from up to like you know a grand to you know something, something thousand more. pounds. Well, like total work for some some of the people. So like for, for I mean I don't want to I don't want to name names, but there are some illustrators that we worked with that did a huge amount of work. Um, you know, and there are people who you kind of you kind of just have to go into like every single negotiation, sort of with like an open mind and just communicate honestly with the people that you're working with and see if you can come to an arrangement. Uh, that's usually the thing that you agree on at the very beginning as well. Make sure that you do that before you get someone to work for you. That's super important. Um, and you know, like I, I'm, I'm really keen. I was always really annoyed by this sort of idea of like unpaid internships and sort of unpaid work as a student. That really drives me crazy. So I want, as a point of like the values, to make sure that my magazine doesn't have that. And I still get emails today from people students being like, do you have any paid internships? And I'm, especially even when I graduated and it just started, I got emails like that. And I was like, I want to be like, do you know of any paid internships that I can get? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, please? Um, but yeah. Uh, I'm going to come work for you, is that right? <laughs> um, well, I think everyone who, well, I come from obviously indie mag background where I'm very used to it, everyone just throwing their weight in, whether they're a startup, uh, a new writer or a very established photographer or whatever, it's nothing new to me and now I'm at the coalface I can understand why, because it's so horrendously expensive and you don't make much money. So um, we, basically everyone who's involved is doing it because they want to be part of it and they believe in the vision and the first issue was the first issue, we're hoping we can be more generous with the second one but we're really just still making our own way. And, by no means breaking even so we just get shown a lot of love and you know the odd expense and you know honorarium we call it but not not real rates i mean if only we could we'd love to but not right now uh sorry it's more money things um are you working alongside doing these projects um and then you're also paying yourself for them and then also with your contributors especially um I think it's probably more relevant to you guys, just because I, I think it's more relevant to my situation. But um, sort of, have you always been able to tell contributors you're going to be able to pay them, or did you have to at the beginning be like, I might be able to, or I might not? Do you know what I mean? Like, sorry, that's three questions. <laughs> okay, so so there was, do you pay yourself? Yeah. Have do you, you work alongside it? So do you do you also do <coughs> other stuff alongside that magazine? Yeah. And have you always been able to tell contributors yeah. you paid? Okay. Sorry. No, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can't remember what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> what was the order? No, I don't pay myself for doing Natal, not in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, 
I do a lot of other work, everyone on the team does. Um, a lot of it feeds into and out of Natal. It's in, obviously in the same world or in editorial or advertising or brand consultancy or other journalism or other creative direction. A lot of projects are now, well not a lot, but some projects are now coming to us because of what we do, which is another outlet. We're hoping that we can uh, make this thing work for us. Um, but we're not, we're not sitting here with a big payroll and a team and everyone you know, living the life, unfortunately. Um, and I think it's a dangerous game to say, oh, we might be able to pay you have to see how it goes because then that's just going to upset people. I think you have to be straight from the start. You want to be part of it. This is what it is. Yeah, I mean, same as like what she said. Um, so yeah, I do something else on the side, and I uh, I don't pay myself. I reinvest whatever we've made into Dreadful Press, which is like making other other projects as well. That's kind of enabled us to to make make more things, and um, I think it's cool like to either like if. As I said, if you have like a contributor you really, really want, then pay them. And especially if you know that they're going to fulfill on time for you, make something amazing, make something that like really makes makes your product greater, then do pay people. Um, and also, you can give people bonuses. We've done that when things have gone really well. We've been like, oh, there's a PayPal transfer because like <laughs> this actually went really well. So like it's a little sort of sort of uh, Christmas bonus. Um, not on Christmas. <laughs> That's true. We we very much do that with our contributors. We yeah. get some sweet things elsewhere. We'll give yeah. it to them first. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like I, I mean, yeah, I do freelance work and stuff um, outside of what I do, um, and I haven't really paid myself a huge, massive lump sum for all of the work that I've done for the magazine. But I have paid myself a little bit. But I think. And that's also just been on like a simple, simple like invoice basis for other work that I did because I illustrated for the magazine as well. Um, but even though I'm not sort of giving myself like a daily rate, the thing about having a company it insulates me from like a lot of other costs. Like I don't pay directly for my Creative Cloud, you know, Adobe. That's all paid for by my company. Do you know what I mean? So there's like stuff like that. Like there's like running costs of like running a business, my domain names and stuff. You know, that's kind of operated by my business. You know. Um, in terms of sort of uh, like with when I'm sort of paying other people, like we have, I have like a writing agreement that is like a legal agreement that so we agree on a rate beforehand, so that's all signed. Um, so that kind of like limits my ability to sort of give bonuses in that way because like it's all in paper and I don't want to sort of jeopardize that. But it also means that like I own everything. Um, what was the other aspect? Of, there was like another aspect of the question, wasn't there? So, so like at the very beginning. When you like weren't sure, oh yeah, 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 yeah. you were going to get the Kickstarter money. Like, how could you say to people, "I'm going to pay you if you didn't know you were going to get that money"? All right, so I somehow managed to get Dan Mumford, who's like a really prestigious, amazing illustrator. He did like the Star Wars Episode Seven posters and stuff. He's 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 amazing. Um, I managed to get him to commit to doing our cover art, and I agreed to pay the money either way, even if we got the Kickstarter funded or not. So it was a risk. <laughs> Is the honest truth. Like I, I didn't commission anything until I knew that my Kickstarter and everything was in place, and that I knew that was a chance of paying it back. And I knew that even if it didn't work out, but I would be sort of, um, but I would be paying through my own money anyway. So that was like that was a gamble. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I can say authoritatively go and take risks like that, but I think it was like a healthy 
It was like, a, I don't know, it, it worked out. So it was like a decent risk. You're going to end up with an illustration on your bedroom wall. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And like, I don't know. Like, I think if you like, like, like the other said, like, if you if you care about someone, you should be willing to, you know, if you, if if that person's involvement is really going to help you in a big way, just just pay just pay them. You know, like if you. Uh, the thing is, like, it's it's really tough, right? Because all of the stuff we're talking about today is kind of irrelevant if you can't get funding. Do you know what I mean? But like. Um, the battle to doing that is there's like there's so many different avenues for it. There's like a lot of maneuverability. Um, yeah. Okay, more, more questions over here. <laughs> I, I respond to hand waving. I see. <laughs> um, hi, so I'd like to ask um, how I mean how long do you see yourselves doing what you're doing, and how would you go on about cultivating um, longevity for each one of the publications? Yeah, very good question. We are being organic, but I think the way forward these days isn't just, oh, we do an NW print magazine and that is that. Like, that's just not sustainable at all. So for that's why we started with print, uh, with digital, and then events, and now the magazine, and now we're thinking, not very in any kind of planned way, but where can we go from here? So like I said, for the last question, it might be a consultancy, it might be doing an actual product with a, with a brand that makes sense, you know, not like t-shirts, but you know, something beautiful. Um, it could be going into uh, bigger events. It's how you, the horrible term, but like that multi-platform approach. So what, what could the Natal brand mean in other, in other forms? So I think for us, that would be the way forward. I and mean, we love magazines and, you know, born and bred in magazines, but that's the mothership. But what, what could come out from there, different ways of, making what you do make sense in the real world. Okay. Um, well, I think that's very, very right. I think also, like, with, with me for Sabbath, like, I had such a sort of um, fire of, like, ins creative inspiration. Like, I was really filled up with my project when I did it. It was a thing that was bigger than me. And then it's, it's not burned out, but it's definitely changed form so that it's nice to change roles a little bit. Like you're changing from being the creative person, maybe who brings everything together into being an administrative person who helps someone else on the way or understands how the system works. And that can translate into maybe helping people set up their own things or being a teacher or lecturing. Um, working in lots of different ways with what you have learned from the process and I think there's like this like ebb and flow and like creativity that you can't always be filled up with that energy and it's going to you go, you're going to need some breaks or some changes at points in time and uh, and I think that's really important to consider because it's very hard to run an independent magazine <laughs> and like yeah just like following on from that I think I don't know you uh, I, I really believe in what I'm doing and, that, and I think that it's important, so I want to continue doing it as long as I can. But like every single magazine has like a lifespan. I think that's like something that's like important to think about, that what you're doing may be important in a certain moment, but that moment can pass, and it might be a point where like what you're doing might be irrelevant or it might need a complete rechange or whatever. Um, and you know, like also like there's there will also come a point I think for me where I feel like I've made my point and that I won't need to keep making them, um, because a project's not designed to be a thing that goes on forever, and I don't think it should. Um, it kind of like I mean the other thing is also just like it ties into the earlier question about sort of like 
paying yourself and stuff. Like I'm still, I feel like almost like a bit of a fraud next to these two because I'm still sort of struggling to make it um, kind of like a self-sustaining, like perpetual thing that just keeps going on its own. Um, but like, you know, like in a fun way, like being in a position of making a magazine and stuff is kind of, it's kind of thrown a wrench in things. Like when I applied to places for like, when I applied for like internships and stuff after graduating and it said on my CV, creative director and editor, people are just like, what? <laughs> people are like, who's this kid? What does he think? Like it just, it just makes people like, I think it enrages <laughs> like some people higher up in certain studios and stuff. So that's something to watch out for. But I think like, <laughs> just, um, just like having, just like you ultimately, like it goes back to what I said at the beginning, you just have to believe in what you're doing and just want to, want it to continue. Um, these things don't really, uh, like it doesn't really make a lot of sense financially in publishing, but there are ways of making it work. Um, and you can do that. It's not an impossibility. You just kind of have to, you have to love doing it, sort of. Okay, I think we've got time for two more questions. So you've had her already. <laughs> we've got one over here. We're going, to, we're going to go three. We've got one, two, three. Okay. Uh, probably a quick one. What was the size and cost of your first print run? See, that's a practical question I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I genuinely can't remember. I genuinely can't remember. I think I was looking at my budget sheet the other day. I think it was like it was over ten. I think it was over ten k for the amount that we printed in total. But I can't. I I don't want to whip out numbers and figures because they might be wrong. Uh, I'm sorry. How, how many did you print? Um, I think the first print run was about two thousand three hundred, two thousand five hundred. I think. I, again, it's been a long time since I since I looked at those numbers. Yeah, our first print run was 2000 as well, but I do not remember what the price was for that. I mean, we sold it for £9.50, so it must have been something less. <laughs> but I have no idea. Okay, let's go £9.50. No comment. <laughs> okay, so, can I just add something to that as well? You've got, you're going to have to, like, when you're building your, when you're building your publication, you're going to have to constantly, like, talk to a printer about what the unit cost would be for, like, you get hypothetical quotes, basically, where you're like, this is what I'm thinking of making, and they will, like, be able to come back to you with, like, a estimation, basically, of how much it would cost per issue, and that's really important, like, even if you're at the very beginning stages of, like, planning what you're doing, make sure to find a contact with a printer and just talk to them about hypothetical... Yeah, that's like a really <laughs> pops right over there. <laughs> so, so, so for, for, from the printer's point of view, what do you want to know when someone comes to you with a magazine idea? Well, what size is it? What sort of paper is it? When are you doing it? Well, how many copies is it going to be? Because it might be digital or it might be litho. Um, and the choice of digital or litho might drive what the paper is going to be as well. So there's, have an idea of what you think it might look like. And um, when you're thinking of doing it, and I mean, we, we work with people all the time where they really don't have that information yet, and you, you just have to put your arms around the project and help them towards something that will work. And I always say to the people, well, get something that you can put a figure on the board and something you can start working around because it, it can change a lot from the point where you first start talking about it. Basically, this is a conversation that just like goes on and on and on. So, like, go to the printer as early as you can. Say, this is what I want to do. Like, help. And uh, and 
do that with like several different printers no, and, then, no, no. <laughs> and then play them off against each other. And I think it's also really important to say like if you have a really clever graphic designer, they will know a lot about paper and a lot about what's value for money in that process. So you don't sort of get lost in doing some very expensive effect when you could do something a lot cheaper and etc. Sorry, Cassie, you want to say Yeah, I just want to say, so like, when you're thinking of like budgeting, which is really important, so you figure out what your unit cost is by speaking to a printer, and then you speak to like the post office or shipment companies or whatever to talk about like how much it will cost to send this thing out to like different, <coughs> sort, of, sort of like to different areas. And if you estimate that most of your audience is in say America, that will affect your estimations for how much it's going to cost. You know, so you, like, you need to figure out how much it costs to like physically print and get the paper and sew something together, and then how much it costs to sort of send that out to people. And once you have those two figures or ballpark figures in your mind, it makes it much easier to sort of plan ahead for asking for funding. Like nothing helps more than knowing that, like showing someone that you thought about something and that you're planning something. If you have a coherent vision for like uh, the business side of it, then it can it can really help. Coming over here. Hello. Um, I just want to find out how you went from a blank piece of paper to a beautiful creative magazine with the wonderful visuals and the text and the wonderful font. What was the thought process? How did you get your looks together? Did you use mood boards? Did you cut out magazines, etc.? Just cried a lot. Lots of things, lots of things. We already already had our aesthetic from the website and, so, and our editorial vision from the website, but we didn't want to just translate that straight onto print. One thing, one exciting thing we did is um, we commissioned our own typeface, unique typeface, which was really good fun. Um, but it was very much uh, stories first, so we sort of ploughed into all the what we wanted the magazine to be about and who we wanted to feature in it. And then along came the, uh, and then obviously in tandem with that, the art direction, the picture editing, and the last phase was the, the more the page layouts and the sides and all the sort of more technical bits and bobs at the end. Um, but it was, it was a great journey and we, we already knew the world we lived in, so it wasn't like we were from scratch, scratch, but we wanted to make sure it felt fresh and new. We changed our, our, our headline font, you know, we kind of thought if we've been around for two, three years, you want to come out with something that's recognisably Natal, but it's definitely moved on and it feels special and new. Um, it was, yeah, it was. It wasn't a real plan journey. We didn't do mood boards as such because we knew where we were, but we just thought, how can we make this new again? Um, I'm kind of, I don't know. I I I come at it from like a different perspective. Right? I think a little bit. I used to do illustration before, so I'm really like hands-on in what I do, and I like having, um, like trying my hand at everything. So I went from doing like collages, physical collages of what I wanted things to look like, and then I was styling things because I was like, I don't actually know what I should tell a stylist, so I'm just gonna try and style something. And you learn a lot from doing all of those things yourself, because all of a sudden you realize that, oh, this is gonna look very different if I photocopy it, this is going to look very different if uh, this goes through a camera lens and I think through that sort of very hands-on approach you you learn a lot of like how to tell people what to do so afterwards I could sort of say oh this is what I want 
but in the beginning I didn't know how to tell people what I wanted. Like if I just had a Pinterest board, I wouldn't know how to ask for what I wanted. Like for me, I think I, I really, I, the format for whatever I was going to build was like completely new to me. So I'd never built something on a massive scale like this before. I'd just done one or two things that I made myself and like printed on my own and that's great. But when you work on a professional level with you're printing thousands of copies, you need to sort of make sure what you're doing is, you know, adequate. Um, and I battled for ages on sort of what the page dimensions should be. Should it be long, fat, thin, short? Uh, that took ages. I didn't even, in that sense, I didn't even start with like a blank page. I started with like just trying to figure out what the page was. Um, but sort of like moving beyond that, I think, I, because, the thing with this process of sort of making something, it's about small victories, it's not about massive leaps. So I had examples of like zines and stuff that I'd made before that can kind of, sh not only was I able to use that to get funded in the first place, but it also sh like provided like a, kind of like a lighthouse beacon for me to sort of, that's what I need to aim for, that's what the look's gonna be. Um, and I think honing in on that was super, super important and just sort of, it's like, it was weird, it was like molding something out of clay. Like, I, uh, here's a pro tip I will give you now, that I wish I'd done, but it would have been a different project, is like, if you're not sure like how big your page dimension should be or whatever, you should speak to like a delivery company or whatever about what's the cheapest kind of envelope you can get. <laughs> because if you get like an envelope that's like just slightly thinner, but it's sort of a lot cheaper or whatever, then you can sort of build and structure your product to sort of fit in a really good effect, cost-effective way of shipment. So if you're like me and you're like, God, what the hell am I even doing? Then that's like a really good thing. I wish I'd done that. I'm giving, I'm giving this to you now. This is my gift to you. You can take that. But also, totally look at stuff like Royal Mail's thresholds for weight. Like yeah, yeah. If you're under 750 grams, then you could be a large letter. If you're over 750 grams, you're a parcel, and that literally costs twice as much. So, like, keep keep those things in mind. Okay, we're gonna have our last question tonight. No pressure, but it's better be really good. Um, so, for Saba, you mentioned at the beginning, um, when you really were starting out, you started, you, you harnessed the whole Instagram, which is the Instagram community, and you reached out to them. I was curious what you asked them, and um, for all of you, um, as a niche magazine starting out, what do you base your sales target and your first print run? How do you justify it, and what kind of, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, how I reached out, I think the sort of interview, Sabat ended up being a lot about like who are these modern witches, so we ended up having this like interview structure that was based off of the first interviews I did with quote unquote modern witches uh, that I interviewed through Instagram, and I asked them like, what does the word witch mean to you, and like how are feminism and witchcraft connected for you? If I interviewed artists, a lot of like these witches were creative people, like how is your witchcraft expressed in your art? And through having kind of quite formulaic questions, I got I, like I got very different responses, and I felt like we ended up portraying all these like different sides to these modern witches and showing diversity through having this kind of quite rigid format, quite a Q&A format. So does that answer your question? Or, or? And, and then there's a side of it about the, the print run. So how do you know how much to print in the first place, right? Uh, how do you know how much to print in the first place? 
Like, I don't know. Um, it's like, I looked at like how expensive it would be to print 500 copies, 1,000 copies, and then 2,000 made sense, just because everything else was so expensive per copy that you just like, that's not never gonna make sense to print 500 copies. It's better to not sell like an amount of copies than to print a very small print number. And uh, kind of went from that. Yeah, like uh, the more you print, the better, yeah. basically. So really, the answer should be like whatever you can afford, like whatever the max you can afford is, I think. Yeah. Because the unit cost that we were talking about earlier goes down the more of it you print. So it becomes more cost-effective for the printer to sort of get the, uh, the paper stock in and all the rest of it. And when they're processing a massive job, yeah. the cost to make each of those individual magazines goes down per issue. So you end up with a bigger margin of... I just want to jump at this point and say, don't necessarily do that. <laughs> Cass has had a very particular experience where yeah. he's like, he printed and then like sold everything. You should only print what you think realistically you're going to be able to sell. Because, uh, because that's just so hard to know. Because I was like, I'm making a witchcraft magazine, and we sold out as well. I'm like, never knew See? we were gonna sell out. See, Stephen. Yeah. No. You're <laughs> All right. Look, I know lots of people who have got a lot of copies of magazines in their parents' living rooms. Like <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got to. Basically, it always gets cheaper. The the economies of scale kick in. It gets cheaper and cheaper per copy. But you've got to just keep in mind. How many do I actually think I could sell for this? And, and like, look, so 2000 for you? Yeah. You, was about 2000 as well, right? I think it was like more than that, but yeah, around. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's not a crazy no, number no, of no, magazines. Right. But like, you know, people do honestly with their first issue print 6,000 copies, and like, that takes up a lot of space. There's a, that's a lot of paper. Can I say something in my self defense, just quickly? Uh, <laughs> Like, I think this goes back to something that um, was touched upon earlier, that, um, you know, the idea of making a magazine that will be kept. Um, I'm quite insistent with, like, my, my plans, at least for my magazines, that I want it to still be relevant in 10 years' time. So the idea for me is that I want to print something that will still be, like, it's, like, traditional magazine lifespans, I think, they would be around for a bit and then they'd be gone because the information in them would all be irrelevant by a certain amount of point. But, like, I think, the idea of like building a coffee table book. The hope is of the insurance, I mean, I'm banking on, we'll see, maybe Stephen will be proven right on this, but um, like what I'm banking on is the fact that like, uh, we'll still be steadily selling magazines into the future because the content that we've got in those publications is still gonna be relevant, it's still gonna be beautiful, and it's still gonna be something that people are gonna want. So there's, um, that's kind of like my insurance policy, at least, for like printing a lot of copies, if that makes sense. But I do realize, like, Stephen's absolutely right, that my situation's particular, and like, you all have to kind of find something that like fits perfectly to your, your business and your company and your model, really. There is no uh, one-size-fits-all solution to this. I mean, I think it's, it would sound like we have this idea of making a fashion magazine for a witch, so I did like seasons and everything, but we sell the back issue still like two years later. So it's like something that is still relevant, even though it has like spring, summer, 2016 printed on the back, people still buy it. And um, I think that's really relevant. Like, are you making something current? Are you making something seasonal? Are you making something for fashion for now? Or are you making something that is a very sort of editorial focused content uh, little sort of capsule then that can be relevant for longer and you can sell back issues for longer and uh, yeah just think about how you think that's going to work
had this moment when I saw a copy of the Maiden Issue of Sabbat being sold on eBay, and I was like, oh my god, this is like all that we ever wanted to do. Um, and then I reprinted, and then it was gone. But anyway, that <laughs> yeah, like, was a high point. With my reprint, like those magazines of issue one, even though they're coming up to being like half a year old now, still selling. So, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming tonight. Um, as speaker, somebody who um, makes their living selling magazines, I'm very happy to see such a busy room full of people interested in making magazines. Thank you very much for the panel uh, for coming and sharing the knowledge. Thank you very much to Park for coming and also sharing your knowledge. And I, I, I hope that people will come and talk to these guys at the end. Um, and I hope you'll come and join us at another Stack event at some point later in the year. Cheers. Wow, okay, you made it all the way through to the end. I hope that was interesting, and I hope it was all audible too. Um, recording at live events is obviously always a bit tricky, but um, I did my best to try and make sure you could hear everyone. I don't want to make a long episode even longer, so I'll just say a very quick thanks to everyone who came out in the snow on Tuesday night. Thanks to our speakers for sharing their thoughts and experiences. Thanks to Park Communications for supporting us. Once again, you can check them out and drop them a line at parkcom.co.uk. And thanks very much to you for listening. I'll be totally honest and admit that we don't currently have anyone lined up for next week's episode, but I'm going to get on the case with that and with a bit of luck, we'll be back with another much shorter episode next week.